Turning into Jumpy Ellie's basketball show Hosted by a guy called Jumpy Ellie Tuning into Jumpy Ellie's basketball show At JumpyEllie.com Good morning, everybody. This is another edition of the Castball Show brought to you by JohnPielli.com by St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey. By two ways, one passion food truck located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Glad to be with you. I hope everybody enjoyed their Thanksgiving. And thanks for the good feedback in regards to the top 10 NFL head coaches of all time. Um, thought a little bit about Sid Gilman, who was an honorable mention. John Madden. You know, during the time he coached, he obviously led his team to the promised land. Obviously, he ends up moving on into bigger and better things with Madden, the video game, and Madden being one of the all-time great um, NFL analysts in the history of the sport. But John Madden, the coach, certainly deserves some credit. Um, I think a little bit about Bill Parcells, and the one thing that frustrates me about him is the fact that, sure, he earned within his time with the Giants, how he helped along with George Young build that team from a laughingstock, a bad football team, into one of the most feared and best teams in the entire league. Winning the two Super Bowls, he earned the opportunity to walk away. And he did. He ends up going to the Patriots, takes them to a Super Bowl, and then leaves. Takes a job with the Jets, leaves his post as a head coach to stay on as general manager, and then he ends up leaving there. He goes to Dallas, and things don't work out as well there. And obviously, you understand from a coach's perspective, a coach is meant to coach. But it's just the seemingly indecisiveness of Bill Parcells over the course of his NFL career. And if I had the chance to ask him, I'd say, why do you get through a certain time where you feel like you got to go? You're born to coach. Listen, you get a pass with the Giants, certainly. You know, you'll never, Bill Parcells will never have to buy a drink um, in the presence of a New York Giants football fan again. But then after that, it's just, you're in New England for a little bit, you lead the team to a Super Bowl appearance, and you walk away. You go to the Jets, first you step away as head coach, then you step away from the organization altogether. And then obviously, you know, it's, it's going to be tough working with Jerry Jones regardless, but it's hard to identify or maybe it's hard to appreciate how good of a head coach Bill Parcells was because of all that moving around, because of the second half of his career after he left the football giants, where he seems to be a little bit of a nomad, a little bit of a gypsy per se, and he just moves on to different franchises, doesn't stick around any, any place for any considerable period of time. Obviously, you got the coronavirus running rampant through the country, obviously impacting professional sports as we're watching, whether it's the Ravens and the Steelers or you're finding just random cases. The NFL is doing a very good job of testing, making sure players are testing every single day. And obviously, when there's positive tests, there's a, a kind of a um, more microscopic um you know, down to the point where they're really cutting down, making sure that they're testing players multiple times a day. So you're going to find a lot more cases in the National Football League. And to this point, the NFL has done a good job in keeping things under wraps. Yes, there's been a lot of cases. There's been some outbreaks in some cases. But the NFL has been able to continue its season 
up to this point. Now, they've had to reschedule a couple games, and they haven't had to go into that de facto Week 18 setting yet. And we may be close to having to use that window or that opportunity with the unfortunate situation that's going on with the Baltimore Ravens right now. They continue to have players that are testing positive. And as we hit the cuckoo clock and what we call our opening point here of the Passball Show, glad to be with you as always. But as we think about the Baltimore Ravens and their game, which was originally scheduled for Thanksgiving night, was eventually moved to Tuesday. And we are right on the brinks of having that game have to be rescheduled from outside this week whatsoever, which will, because of scheduling conflicts, force the NFL to have to have a Steelers-Raven game in that de facto Week 18 period. But the reason that I wanted to bring this up is, you know, you look at something that becomes an outbreak, and I think our instant reaction is to blame those that are stricken with the virus. We always want to assume, especially for most of us or the amount of us that has never been stricken with the coronavirus, and knock on wood, thank God, hope that it, it never really does reach us, and I hope that it doesn't. But we tend to look at things in, in a kind of a different type of spectrum. We're thinking that anybody that gets it kind of deserves to get it. And, you know, that may be harsh words. And, you know, you may hear that and say, wow, how could you say that? It's being said. And that's why I'm saying it like this. And that statement couldn't be any more incorrect. It couldn't be any more ignorant. It couldn't be any more. It's just just straight up wrong. This is a virus that you you think of the amount of millions of people that have been infected by it. And I promise you, if you pulled them, none of them tried to get it. And you'd find some may have been in more risky situations than others. Some just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. But very few or a small percentage of those that have gotten this virus have done so in a way because of their own negligence. Sometimes you're just in a spot. Somebody somebody happens to touch something, you touch it. Um, Whether it goes through the air, you happen to breathe in the air, you end up getting the virus. And every time we seem to have an outbreak for a sports team, going back to the Miami Marlins in the Major League Baseball season, you think earlier in the NFL season with the Tennessee Titans, and there's been other instances, whether it's the Raiders, whether it's some of the other teams in baseball, the Cardinals, the Mets. Now, obviously, the Baltimore Ravens, have a little bit of an outbreak going on. And the tendency is to try to blame members of the Baltimore Ravens as if they were the ones that caused this to happen. And you're not hearing it any more of, of a point made than in the city of Pittsburgh, the same city that tried to blame the St. Louis Cardinals for what was maybe a little bit of a, um, I don't know, an unhealthy or unsafe practice that was going on, which led to a player or two getting the coronavirus. And you hear them calling for a forfeit. You hear Juju Smith-Schuster, the star wide receiver of the Pittsburgh Steelers, make kind of airing his frustration, saying, hey, we, you know, we were in the wrong place at the wrong time, happened to be playing the Tennessee Titans in a week where their team ends up getting the coronavirus. We had our game rescheduled because of it. We had to use our bye 
in a week that we weren't expecting to use our bye. And now, as the Pittsburgh Steelers sit in there, they're in this unfortunate situation where the Baltimore Ravens are costing them their Thanksgiving night game. And that's unfair. I can understand it from a certain perspective coming from a player. A player is just talking about their frustration. A player wants to be out there playing football. And let's be serious. We give players more of a pass when it comes to their ignorance than we do members of the media. So the members of the media that are out there in Pittsburgh that are calling for the Baltimore Ravens to forfeit this game against the Pittsburgh Steelers couldn't be any more incorrect and kind of have a little egg on their face as we find out three members of the Pittsburgh Steelers may have very well tested positive for this same virus. And if that's the case, then the Steelers are in a situation where they, they, we have to do, we have to worry about contacts, who's been around these people, and we're going to have to get a little more testing. And what happens when we have a little more testing? We find out that there's another player that has it, maybe another player that was in close contact with one of the players that tested positive, or maybe an asymptomatic player just because of these extra tests. We find out they have it when they didn't have it before. The worst thing you could do in this situation, especially from a member of the media standpoint, is to go out there and blame another athlete or another team for having this virus. Nobody goes out there in this country when they find out that somebody they know tests positive. Nobody goes the blame game and starts blaming them and say, hey, how could you get this virus as if it's something that they went out and chose to do on their own? And the same applies to athletes. You know, they're out there trying to earn a paycheck. They go out there and they're playing football. You know, some players have opted out this year. Obviously, Major League Baseball, the same thing. NBA, NHL, if there's players that don't feel safe enough, they're going to opt out. They're going to choose not to play. But for those that choose to play, they're playing with the risk that they could end up contracting this virus. And those that do, I promise you, aren't doing it on purpose. Those that do, in more cases than not, are not being extremely negligent in their practices in a way that they're handling themselves. So if you want to go out there and blame those that have gotten the coronavirus, shame on you. And I'm not going to go any further. I don't believe in the word karma. I don't think there's karma involved with the Pittsburgh Steelers and a couple players that have tested positive. But if you remember Rudy Gobert, the star player for the Utah Jazz, who was kind of making a, a joke about the whole coronavirus thing back in March, touching all the microphones and the tables and stuff like that, and then he ends up testing positive himself. Those things end up happening sometimes. And we should understand that this is a very serious thing when we're dealing with the coronavirus, not just the simple words that I just said, but the fact that it's in the air, it's close to us. Any of us could come in contact with somebody that has it, or we could develop it on our own. You could just be in air that's contaminated with this virus and start a case on your own and spread it to people that you know. But to go out there and blame a team and say the Baltimore Ravens have the coronavirus because they're out there doing things that they're not supposed to be doing, I think is a complete erroneous report sounds like a lack of compassion for anybody that could deal with this situation. And, you know, I hope that anybody that was reporting like that doesn't end up having to 
deal with a serious case within their own self, family, or friends. This copyright and broadcast is authorized under internet rights granted by the World Wide Web and is solely for entertainment of our audience. Any publication or reproduction of the use of the pictures, descriptions, and accounts of this show without the express written consent of the Passball Show, JohnPielli.com and JohnPielli LLC is prohibited. Any commercial or use of programs such as by charging admission for its showing is similarly prohibited. So I wanted to talk a little bit about PEDs in uh, sports but mostly in Major League Baseball. And I had a friend that made a comment, a comment that wasn't much different than what a lot of people in the general public made, but it kind of made me think about PEDs as they are still existing in the sport of baseball. And I believe that where there's opportunity, there's going to be players that are going to use. And it doesn't just mean baseball. It means football. It means basketball. It means hockey. It means golf. It means any competitive sport where athletes are looking for any advantage that they can get. But I think there's a misconception when it comes to the general public in the understanding of performance enhancing drugs in sports. Because I think it's very naive to believe that baseball, football, basketball, and hockey for that matter, have all set testing practices, all players are being tested for the use of performance enhancing drugs, and there's a penalty for those that end up failing said drug test. And we tend to believe that things are hunky-dory, that players, their agents have all decided, well, because there's no, because there's testing now, because we understand the penalties of what happens if we end up failing a drug test, We're just going to stop using all types of performance enhancing drugs and we're going to forget that they ever existed. And I think it's a very good statement to make. It would be nice if it was true, but we can't be too naive to understand or expect that to be the general practice. What happens when it comes to players that are using performance enhancing drugs? We tend to think that it's kind of twofold. That there's players that decide that they want to use performance enhancing drugs. They go out there and use it and they'll use it recklessly. And there'll be a point where they end up testing positive for the use of said substance. There's also the other angle where we think of players that are a certain mass in regards to weight and height. And all of a sudden, over the course of a couple of years, that mass kind of doubles You think of Barry Bonds, you know, kind of a stick type of figure as as a a well put together player with the Pittsburgh Pirates and in his early years with the San Francisco Giants. But we know in the later years, the later part of the 90s and the 2000s, when he's out there breaking single season and all time home run records, his face and his head grows quite a bit. His body mass looks almost like Shaq. And we could tell that maybe there is something chemically up with his body. And those are really our two understandings of what players that use performance enhancing drugs are like. They take the drugs and they fail the drug test or their bodies grow to tremendous sizes. There's other elements to this, which I don't think a lot of people are understanding. The chemist, the trainers, 
everybody that's in business from a pharmaceutical standpoint understands how much of a business it would be if you were able to develop chemicals for players to use to enhance their own performance. Now, they're not going to do it in the casual way to say, hey, here's, you know, this horse, you know, steroid that we use for thoroughbreds. Here's what we use, you know, for dinosaurs, you know, back in, uh, you know, 20,000 BC. Now, here's a chemical that we're trying to develop with the intention that number one, it's going to get through all of these tests. You don't think that there's chemists and doctors out there that are trying to come up with substances for players to take that aren't going to come up on drug tests, that aren't going to come up, you know, amongst the things that all professional sports include and, and amateur sports, including the Olympics, are testing for? Come on. That's very naive to think of that. And to think of players that are failing a drug test, such as a Robinson Cano, I'm willing to take a step further and say that Robinson Cano may have believed that he was taking something that wasn't going to come up in a drug test. I don't think he was that foolish to continue to take the same substance and chemicals that he was taking when he failed his first PED test. You know, we, we tend to think of ourselves as so much smarter than your average athlete, especially your average athlete that goes out there and fails a performance enhancing drug test for the second time. My belief when it comes to Robinson Cano is that he was given a chemical. It was created by a scientist or put together by somebody in the pharmaceutical industry. It was tested. It was tested amongst those that realized that it wouldn't come up amongst certain PED tests. And if you think about the fertility drugs that came up in a positive test for Manny Ramirez years ago, not just Manny Ramirez, but other similar players, it's proof that pharmacists, chemists, trainers are going out there to try to find something that can enhance a player's performance, but also not come up during a typical performance-enhancing drug test. And this is going to continue to go on forever. I'm sorry. It's not something that's going to go away. You could put any type of test in there. I would expect to see more PEDs kind of developed along the lines of ADHD medication. Because I think, you know, you're looking at what will Major League Baseball test for what can be acceptable in certain cases. And we understand that for, you know, ADHD, you know, the players that can get exemptions for the need to have that prescribed, if you could slip some other PEDs in there to enhance their performance, that player is going to do it. And if that player knows that there's a good chance they may not get caught, that's going to be even more of an incentive for them to do it. But I do believe, and I keep saying that we are naive because we are extremely naive in this belief that the use of performance-enhancing drugs in sports is going to go away anytime soon. There's great players in the sport that likely are using some sort of PEDs. And we know that it's a huge risk for anybody that's at the top of the game to be caught. You get caught 
your reputation is tarnished and your reputation is tarnished differently in a year of 2020 than it would have been if you were found out to have done in the 80s or the 90s. Now, in my opinion, what's wrong is wrong, or at the very least, I like to see some sort of consistency. And if you know my way of thinking, if you listened to the past ball show before, I judge players based off of their stats, their accomplishments. I've been one to say that a, a competitive athlete is going to look for anything to gain any sort of advantage they can over their opponent. In baseball, that type of practice has existed from day one. Whether we're talking about scuffed baseballs, spitballs, court bats, uh, you know, games not being on a level, steroids, amphetamines, anything, pine tar, anything that a player can get their hands on that will give them an advantage over their opponent. And in some cases, an advantage over their peers, those that they are competing with to hold on to a very lucrative job. And we know since the site's decision of late 1976, free agency in Major League Baseball, we know professional sports in general, athletes get paid an awful lot of money. And the money element is something that has hit this generation harder than athletes of Christmas past. If you go back to the 50s and the 60s and even before that, we understand that your average professional athlete may not earn enough of an income over the course of the season that they play in baseball or football or basketball or hockey and needed to get a second job in the offseason. We understand that players that play any sport professionally, especially those that are any good or have any length as far as playing a certain amount of time in the sport, will be set for the rest of their lives. And because of this, it creates another level of competition amongst those players that want to make sure that they earn that next contract, want to make sure that they you know, play a certain amount of time so they qualify for a pension. But to get that first contract and their second big contract and to make sure that they're taken care of, their family's taken care of, their family's family is taken care of, there's kids, kids, kids are taken care of. They're going to do everything that they need to do. And in some cases, sacrifice in their own body. But most importantly, they want to try to find a way that at least is not going to be detected. And if they can get away with it and have it not be detected, then they win. And my question is always going to be this. How many players have played in whatever your favorite sport is? Baseball, football, basketball, hockey. Because I, I mean, you know, golf, tennis, whatever you want to bring up. You know, how many players have we known and loved that used some sort of PED that we just don't know about? You think of your favorite player as the cleanest person, the person that would never stoop to that level and do something. Well, did you ever ask, would they do something if they knew that nobody would ever find out? Because I think we all could go back to a past generation where we've all tried to do something that we weren't supposed to do because we knew our parents or our boss or somebody that was in a authoritative position over us would not find out. If you did it and they don't know, it doesn't count as doing it. The same applies to sports. But what you're compounding with this is the amount of money that these athletes are making. They're making so much money 
and have an impact on those around them and can have an impact on their family and their future family, that it will be very, you know, it would be very advantageous to them if they could find a way to make the most money, to get and gain the most lucrative contract. And it may not be necessarily the people that you think. And the other element of this, too, is the part that I was talking about, let's say, a Barry Bonds or even a Mark McGuire. If you look at Mark McGuire in you know, circa 1987, and then you look at him in 1998, he's certainly much bigger. Sammy Sosa was known as a smaller guy when he came up with the White Sox in the early 90s. You, know, you look at these players and you see, wow. You know, the weight gain, the growth, they look a lot more strong. They look a lot bigger. And that is a telltale sign, maybe, of those using performance-enhancing drugs. I think the chemist and the lab technicians and the trainers know that, too. And they're trying to, and they've been trying to develop chemicals that could not only not be detected, but not create huge body mass increases because we, you know, they know that the general public sees that just like the general public knows about a failed performance enhancing drug test. So if you get the player to not test positive, if you get the player to not have their body mass grow at a ridiculous rate, then the court of public opinion is not going to be against you. And if that player is able to get away with taking said performance-enhancing drug for however many years and accomplishes the things that they accomplish, then they win. But what does that do if you actually know that and know that every player that has done something should be taken into question? I'm confident that there are several players in baseball's Hall of Fame that use performance-enhancing drugs over the course of their careers. Now, we don't know exactly how far back they trace, we know that some of the amphetamines were at the very least a little bit dirty when they were taken in the 50s and 60s. They could have been laced with other stuff, but once again, the technology is not there and there's no way to prove it. But we also know that players would have done everything that they possibly could to gain an advantage, to gain an advantage over their peers, to gain an advantage over their competition, to keep their careers going on and playing as long as they possibly can. And of course, for those that it was necessary for to obtain enough time to qualify for a major league baseball pension, for a pro football pension, for a pension in basketball and a pension in hockey. And they would do everything they can to do that. So a couple of my questions that I have out there for those that judge and you say, hey, this player looks like they use performance enhancing drugs. Well, there wasn't anything to ever link that player. You know, I could call out some players, you know, names of, of dudes that were a little bit bigger, that played in the steroids era in Major League Baseball, that never were suspected. That neither means that they didn't use or they did. It doesn't matter. Because there was never any proof. And they passed in a court of public opinion. But I question this court of public opinion. Because I think there's many fallacies in the natural thought process, which leaves out a lot of possibilities. And the fact that you got your chemist, you got your scientist, you got your people out there that are develop, developing chemicals to not come up amongst the tests 
that are being performed daily, weekly, monthly, yearly when it comes to professional sports. They're looking to develop something that isn't going to come up on any of these tests. They're looking to develop something that's going to enhance the performance of a player without coming up as any of these chemicals that are being tested for. And they're also doing something about body mass. They understand that the general public calls out for those that all of a sudden become bigger and stronger overnight. So what if something was developed to enhance a player's performance, but not to put drastic body mass on that person? And the player gets away with it. Then you got the heroes that we got in the year of 2020. And this isn't a Robinson Cano Stan segment of the show. But I think Robinson Cano just ends up either taking an incorrect dose or something, maybe got misled into trying something that he didn't have the evidence that it wasn't going to come up on a test. But for those that simply say Robinson Cano just continued to do what he was doing before, I think that's silly. Now, for those that want to say that Robinson Cano has been using performance-enhancing drugs his entire career, you know, I can't dispute that. I can't say that that isn't true. I mean, he's taking the same chemicals as he was taking in his time with the Yankees. He takes it with the Mariners. He ends up getting suspended the first time. Now he's with the Mets. He continues to take the same thing and gets suspended again. I don't know. It could have been one continuous thing. You know, it could have been a psychological thought in this process. Hey, maybe I I misdosed and that's how I got busted the first time. Let me take it right. Maybe he misdoses again and he's taking the same thing. I don't know. But I think that's the most common story that we're hearing amongst those in a court of public opinion. I just think that there is a battle going on, an under-the-radar battle that we were very seldom going to take a look at because we don't care about it. We don't think it's important enough. We're never going to challenge the doctors and the chemists and the scientists that are out there. Those that probably had the ability to create a vaccine or a cure for the coronavirus and didn't, maybe for political reasons, maybe because you know they weren't getting paid enough money. Nobody offered them the amount of money that they required to be able to put something together. But these are the same people that are working behind the scenes to try to help players. They want players to enhance their performance because it's more lucrative for them. They want players to be able to take stuff that isn't going to come up on your regular drug test. They also want to develop stuff for players to take to get the enhancement of their performance without multiplying in regards to their body mass, without putting on an extra 60 pounds in muscle, without having your neck and head blow out of the shirt that you're wearing. They want to have the same effects and the enhancement of the player's performance. So I was looking at the history of the National Hockey League, and this fascinates me because I think it's worth bringing up. There was a season in 1917 and 1918. The NHL at the time had four teams, all in Canada, two teams in Montreal, one in Ottawa, and one in Toronto. They played a, what's the equivalent of an abbreviated season, 
was 20-something games before they started a playoff format. And the playoffs existed where the two teams with the best record would end up playing for the Stanley Cup. Now, the reason I bring this up, there was two teams in Montreal, the Canadiens, who we know, the 24-time Stanley Cup champions. And he had another team that was called the Montreal Wanderers. Yeah, there was the Ottawa Senators. And I forgot the Toronto team off the top of my head. Hold on. it. I'll, I'll come up with it. It was the Toronto Arenas. There you go. A-R-E-N-A-S. The Toronto Arenas. So they end up playing in this season in 1917 and 1918. Now, the Montreal team, the second Montreal team, the Wanderers, have some sort of financial issues. They, they don't have the ability to bring in certain players. They ask for other players to be loaned to them. Certain things don't work out. And they're threatening to leave the league. Now, the league's saying, hey, just toughen it out through this season. If you want to leave, you, you, can, you can leave after the season. There's only you know another half of the season left. And then there's a new year that comes in 1918. Everybody says, Happy New Year. You know, you celebrate, hey, 1918, is it going to be a good year? Is it not? Obviously, you know, with World War One, it turns out to not be such a good year. Maybe a year as bad as some people could say the year of 2020 is. But two days into it, January 2nd, 1918, all of a sudden, the Montreal Wanderers Arena burns down. And maybe, you know, we talk about, you know, things being in there, investigative reporting, maybe not being as strong as it needed to be. But when I read about this, the first thing I think of is financial trouble, um, threatening to leave the league, asking for players and for help, not getting it. And all of a sudden your arena blows down, uh, you know, burns down uh, kind of a little bit of suspicious. You know, I don't know if they have the crime scene investigation, uh, you know, the type of detective reporting, you know, back then that they have right now. But that's that's a that's a, a red flag right there. You know, the arena burns down, but they were trying to get out of the league. So they end up forfeiting two games on the second and the fifth. And then they withdraw from the league. So they only play six games in the first half of the season. The rest of the teams play 14 games the rest of the first half and another eight in the second half of the season. And I believe it's the, uh, you know, Toronto beats Montreal in the final. And they give Toronto the, the and, and what's interesting about this is I'm actually reading it now, is their playoff series or what is considered a Stanley Cup finals at the time ends in a 1-1 tie. Now, Toronto is considered the champion of the Stanley Cup champions that year. And I don't understand. Oh, okay. So it's a five-game series. And Toronto ends up winning. So they they are the Stanley Cup champion. Um, It's, what, the fourth year after a redefinition of their, their own playoffs? You got the series of hockey, which existed from 1893 to 1914. And then from 1915 on, 1915 to 1926, there's a different era. And then after that is the NHL uh, era from 1927 to now. 
But I just found it fascinating that a, a team would have financial trouble. All of a sudden, their stadium burns down. They end up withdrawing from the league. But there's not enough of an investigation put in there. A similar investigation, which I believe should have been put into the 1914 season in Major League Baseball to see if it was on a level. Because there was no bigger underdog in the history of the World Series, certainly up to that point, than the Boston Braves facing the mighty Philadelphia Athletics. And we know there was some turmoil in there. Players weren't happy with manager slash owner Connie Mack. Penny pension ways. A couple of years later, the team's broken down. 1916, excuse me, is one of the worst seasons for the Philadelphia Athletics in the entire history of Major League Baseball. Was the 1914 baseball season and World Series on a level? The other thing I'd ask, was there any investigation put into the arena that belonged to the Montreal Wanderers and it being burnt down? A team in turmoil, a team in financial struggles. I, I don't get it. I'm going to close the show today with uh, four of the greatest head coaches in the history of professional sports. You know, you're, if you heard me last week, we did pro football top 10. Bill Belichick was number one. He's won six Super Bowls. But there's also Paul Brown, who's won four AAFC championships and three NFL championships for a total of seven. Vince Lombardi, I believe, with his NFL championships and Super Bowls is around five. We think of the NHL that we just talked about a little bit. Scotty Bowman, nine Stanley Cups as a head coach. We know about basketball and Phil Jackson and the 11 that he's won between the Chicago Bulls, six, and the Los Angeles Lakers, five. And then you think of baseball. Who has won the most World Series as a manager? You got Joe McCarthy and you got Casey Stengel with the New York Yankees. A little bit of recap of the show today. And as always, I want to thank everybody for tuning in to the Passball Show. We spoke a little bit about the coronavirus as it's happening in the National Football League. You got the Baltimore Ravens seem to have more positive cases each day. And the natural reaction to those in the court of the public is to think that the Ravens are doing something wrong here. And once the media starts reporting and claiming that the team should have to forfeit, it, it, it just looks very, very ignorant. And, you know, we could use a little more understanding of how this virus doesn't necessarily need to be spread ignorantly, that it could happen to anybody, any good person, who was following the safe safety and protocol and the CDC guidelines could end up with this. And it's unfortunately proven to be true. Juju Smith-Schuster saying, hey, why are we getting penalized for what is happening with other teams? He probably feels a little differently after we find out that a couple members of the Pittsburgh Steelers have the coronavirus. Those outlets in Pittsburgh that were calling for the Baltimore Ravens to forfeit their game probably have a little bit of a different take now that a couple players on the Pittsburgh Steelers have tested positive. We talked about Robinson Cano, and not as much about Cano, but as much about PEDs, how they're still running rampant through the world of sports. And I think many of us are naive enough to think that this isn't a problem. 
that baseball has gotten through it because of its strong drug testing. And players have just decided that they're not going to mess around and they're not going to risk getting in trouble. The exact opposite is probably happening. Chemicals are being developed. You got scientists, you got labs, you got trainers, you got people that understand from a financial standpoint how lucrative it would be if they could develop a performance enhancing drug that a player could take that would not result in a positive drug test, that would not result in an instant massive growth to their body mass. The two things that the general public uh, looks at when they're judging what, you know, a player. Hey, a player tests positive. That means that player is a drug addict. That player, you know, can't stop using steroids, yada, yada, yada. Uh, player's body mass grows. Oh, man, they're definitely taking something. Well, what if the intentions are to try to develop something that doesn't grow players massively in their body mass? And it doesn't result in players testing positive for any one of a list of banned substances in any given sport. That would certainly mean a lot for those doctors, the labs, the chemists, the trainers, whoever can develop that and put it out there and sell it, they can make an awful lot of money. And the players obviously would love to have that advantage to be able to take something that would enhance their performance that nobody would end up finding out. And for those that think that players, for the most part, are just good people, and the ones that are using PEDs are bad people, it's that whole expression or that analogy that could be made. You know, if a kid knows that he's not supposed to do something, but if he knows he can do it without his parents finding out, and obviously I mean him or her, they're more inclined to do it. The same applies to those that are an adult. The same applies to those in a workforce. Rules exist. If you violate a rule, there's a certain penalty. But what if you could get away with doing it without somebody finding out that you did it? If that's the case, did you ever do it? If the tree falls in a forest and nobody's there to see it, did it really happen? The same applies to performance enhancing drugs in sports. I'm telling you that more players are taking it than are ever getting credit for. A lot of them are getting away with it because they're taking substances that are undetectable. Many are getting away with it because they're using substances that aren't blowing their bodies up like a balloon or the Goodyear blimp. I wanted to talk a little hockey. 1917-1918 Montreal Wanderers. One of four teams in the NHL at the time. Had a little financial problem. Were asking for some help. They wanted some more players, some more money. And all of a sudden, their stadium burns down. Should there have been more of an investigation in there? That's what I want to know. Most championships in each sport as a head coach. Paul Brown, seven AAFC championships, NFL championships. Basketball is Phil Jackson with 11. Hockey is Scotty Bowman with nine. And we got baseball with Casey Stengel and Joe McCarthy with seven. This is the Passball Show brought to you by JohnPielli.com, by St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey, by Two Ways, One Passion Food Truck, located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. We'll be back with you next week, talking about everything going on in the world of baseball, sports, and unifying America. Have a nice weekend. God bless you. And as always, I'll see you on the other side.